right, welcome back. So this episode will be a kind of mini episode because half of this week we are going to um, learn and review about the big topic, well, why do we forget? And then connect it back to memory construction. And to emphasize, you know, memory is reconstructive, not reproductive. So it leads to very sub subjective moments and information that we acquire. <coughs> Big thing with forgetting is, you know, sometimes forgetting is a good thing. Uh, we'll learn in the future, future units that sometimes forgetting can be done consciously, um, but it also could be done unconsciously. And we'll tie in a different perspective, that psychodynamic perspective that we know is quite controversial, but we'll still learn, you know, we'll tie in Freud and learn about some defense mechanisms for potential reasons as to why we forget. But that'll be in the future. Um, I'm not really gonna cover that this episode, but stay tuned. Um, what's going on with forgetting is that a lot of times information is interfering with that retrieval um, process. And we'll talk about different areas where or moments within that information processing model of memory, remember encoding storage retrieval, where forgetting can happen. And then I'll talk about other types of forgetting. <coughs> and so what we're going to actually look at and something that would benefit you is if you take a look at the synchronous day 32 presentation, um, we're gonna just review that um, information processing model, but also, you know, where does forgetting fit in? And we'll tie in three key places. There could be encoding failure, storage failure, but also retrieval failure. So to review what encoding failure is, the big thing is, remember, encoding is taking in information, that keyboard part of the information processing um, model analogy. The big thing is if information or a concept or whatever isn't encoding, it does not go into storage and specifically long-term memory. Therefore, we cannot recall or retrieve that information. Um, why would encoding happen or an encoding failure happen? Big thing is inattention to details. Um, that will produce encoding errors. Think automatic processing versus Effortful processing, we talked about, you know, that penny example. Uh, most of you, if not all, um, did not really know out of, a, you know, 10 different pennies, which one was the actual penny. Why? Because you didn't effortfully encode that information. There was an encoding failure there. Um, we also talked about, you know, inattention and the trickiness of paying attention and multitask. Um, Tasking within our perception unit, that's back in unit three. Change blindness is another, you know, potential inattention to details, which leads to encoding failure, and therefore that information doesn't go into our long-term memory. Um, another piece of information that could also coincide or fall under the bubble of encoding failure would be, well, if an in, if if information is encoding, encoded wrong or incorrectly, it then will be stored and recalled incorrectly or wrong. So then when we you know, retrieve that information, yes, we're successfully retrieving it because we have effortfully encoded it, but the encoding process was incorrect. 
Another type of, you know, issue with or potential reason for forgetting, we talked about this, a lot of you actually are very knowledgeable about this effect and it's the Mandela effect. You could also see it as, it's, this is a tongue twister, confabulation. Basically, the Sparknotes definition of this is a collective misremembering of a particular fact or event. Um, where did it come about? Well, it came about, it's a phenomenon, where a large number of people do have a false memory about a particular event or fact. An example, Nelson Mandela's death in 2013 was that initial event to spark the conspiracy because multiple people remembered him dying while he was in prison in the 1980s. Uh, people claimed they recalled news clips, TV coverage, you know, newspapers of Nelson's funeral back in the 1980s, but that is not what happened. Um, after b being released from prison, the activist was the president of South Africa and he lived for the next few decades. Um, so this is a phenomenon. We did this with the, um, the Bernstein Bears. The spelling of it is a collective misremembering. Um, I'm also going to play um, a Star Wars clip for you all during class, so stay tuned for that. The next type of issue with forgetting could be a storage decay or storage failure. Pretty much what's going on here is we're focusing on that next stage of the information processing model. And even if we encode information properly, we encode it effortfully, we can still forget. Um, the big you know, reason <coughs> is unused information will decay over time. Now, there is a slight debate within the storage decay um, bubble of forgetting. Um, it could be decay. It could also be the ability to retrieve um, that decays or even some type of interference. And we're going to talk about different types of negative interference in a moment. Um, the person associated with storage decay, we talked about him earlier, but Ebbinghaus um, and his forgetting curve. And I finally looked up the year, it was in 1885. And with Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve, he actually initially studied it on himself, which is kind of cool. Um, and then this you know, experiment will be recreated and repeated, um, thus leading us to really look at this forgetting curve. What Ebbinghaus found when he was memorizing those nonsense words, <coughs> if he didn't continue to rehearse that material, let's say he just stopped after he knew it on day 10, then there will be a you know, quick drop off with his ability to remember or be able to recall that information correctly. However, then it kind of levels off over time. Pretty much what we've found through Ebbinghaus's um, forgetting curve is we tend to remember and keep that information in storage as much after three years as we do 25 years. Now, give or take years, this isn't a solid, you know, stamp of it's exactly three years to 25 years. You know, it's we're humans. It's very more complicated than that. One thing to be knowledgeable about is if presented a list of graphs, which one would be mostly associated with Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. That's an important thing to be able to retrieve out of your memory. So become familiar and comfortable with explaining the curve um, because it will come up in the future. 
Now, the next type of, you know, issue within recalling or, you know, remembering things <coughs> is the third stage of the information processing model with retrieval failure. This happens to me all the time. You all um, experience me doing this nonstop in class, which is frustrating, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate, where you know the information is there, you know you have encoded it, you know you've been able to retrieve it in the past, but for that moment in time, you are unable to retrieve or pull out that information. The reason why is usually there's not enough information available for accessibility of that information. Think retrieval cues. Remember these retrieval cues are helpful hints in a way to pull out that information. That could be through words, through priming, through pictures, through phrases, through context um, retrieval cues, through a particular type of like um, feeling with state dependent memory or mood congruent memory and so on and so forth. Those are tricks that we use, that we enjoy to use, you know, in actuality, because it helps us retrieve information. Um, this is known as that tip of the tongue phenomenon. Um, it's like, you know it's right there, it's at the tip of your tongue, you just can't produce whatever you're trying to say or recall. Now we know with retrieval failure, there are two different types of ooh, retrieval recall versus recognition. Recognition, there are more um, retrieval cues available. Think multiple choice questions versus to recall something, there are fewer cues. So it's harder to recall information. Think an essay, FRQs, fill in the blank obviously unless there's a word bank, but that to recall something is to really, really, really know that information, where to recognize something, recognition is a little easier. Now, a helpful way to make meaning out of, you know, why do we forget? This may help you, this may not. Remember, the, the goal of really knowing information in AP Psych is how are you going to make meaning out of these abstract concepts and terms? This is a type of semantic encoding right now. Um, remember, semantic encoding is making meaning out of information that is quite novel or new. So this analogy is <coughs> forgotten events are like books that you cannot find in the library. Um, some because they were never actually acquired. That would be that encoding information or encoding failure. Other books are hard to find because they were thrown away. Think storage decay or storage failure. And then lastly, some books are really hard to find because you don't have enough information to look it up in the library catalog and retrieve it, whether it's the author, the title, um, the genre even, and that would be a retrieval failure. Now, remember, this analogy may not help you, um, but that's, you know, on you. Think, what, how is, is there a trick or way to remember this information that makes sense to me? All right, now I'm gonna get into some interference um, possibilities that can lead us to forgetting or not being able to remember information. So I'm gonna break down two different types of interference. We can also refer to them as negative transfer. Now this is hard, okay? This concept is tricky, 
College Board will expect that we know it, and it will take rehearsal on your end and making meaning out of it. I'll give you some helpful hints, but it does fall on your plate to repeat, review, and rehearse. So with interference or negative transfer, what's going on is information is blocking other information. And I know that's very vague at the moment. In other words, learning information may interfere with retrieving or pulling out other information. And this really, really happens, especially when information is quite similar. And I'll give you some examples. There are two types of negative transfers or interference. It's proactive interference and retroactive interference. Within both of these two types of interference, information is blocking information. But the big question is, are we looking at new information or old information? And I'm gonna get, it, get to there. So our first type of interference is proactive interference. Uh, what's going on is older information disrupts later information. In other words, prior information disrupts learning new info. I'm gonna give a couple examples here. I really do believe that coming up with examples will help further cement the definition. So bas basically what's happening for this first example, you are trying to learn a new telephone number. You learning this new telephone number <coughs> is getting blocked by the old telephone number. Okay, so we have that new information is unable, you're unable to remember it because it's interfering with the old information, that old phone number. Another example, learning a new locker combo. Now we don't have lockers this year, obviously, but you know, think back to maybe middle school when you all used lockers, maybe, um, or imagine it. Again, these examples may help you, they may not. Um, so learning a new locker combo, that information is blocked by you remembering and the old information of the previous locker combination. Lastly, <coughs> let's say you're in college and you're taking a language class, you're trying to learn Arabic. You learning Arabic, the, you know, how to say it, how to write it, all of that, that language is hard. You're having trouble because that information is getting blocked or it's interfering with your language classes in high school. Let's say, you know, you took Spanish in high school. Again, prior information, your high school Spanish classes is disrupting you currently learning new information, okay? Now, the other type of retroactive interference is the opposite. And what we have here is newer information is disrupting older information. In other words, new learning disrupts your ability to recall, <coughs> recall or retrieve old info, okay? So this happens to me constantly, um, where let's say, you know, I, it's a new school year, I'm learning my new students' names, what happens is if I were to be asked, well, what, you know, who were your favorite students or who were the students who gave you trouble from the previous year? That would be hard. It would be tricky for me to recall. And why? It's because of retroactive interference. My memory currently is focusing on this new info, my current students' names. 
Um, and you know, their biographies, what they do in class, the questions that they ask, their grades, all of that. Um, and so that then interferes with me being able to recall the older students' names. Um, another example, bringing you know, college Arabic back into play. Let's say you know, college Arabic, <coughs> you're currently in that class in college, you remember, you know, your memory is growing with you being able to recall that current information and retrieve it. When posed a question, you know, can you speak in Spanish again? Maybe you're helping out your roommate with his or her Spanish, whatever, um, content, homework. Your ability to recall your high school Spanish is hard and tricky because of retroactive interference. Um, so those are some things. Now, again, repeat, repeat, repeat. Those are tricky concepts. Now. On the complete opposite end of the interference or negative transfer, we do have positive transfer that could happen <coughs> where it's, it turns into you know, a positive light with remembering information. And what we have here is old information actually in turn helps us with learning new info. In other words, learning Latin for a few years helps us learn French or Spanish or Italian. Um, Another example could be if you know how to play the cello, it'll be easier to learn the violin because the information is slightly similar. All right, another type of memory loss or forgetting would be amnesia, and it just most basically is loss of memory. What happens with amnesia is it usually affects explicit or declarative memories. Think facts information, and personal experiences. It doesn't usually affect our implicit or procedural memory. Remember, implicit or procedural would be <coughs> knowing those motor or cognitive skills, um, and it becomes kind of unconscious. Um, there are two different types of amnesia. We have retrograde and anterior grade. And then I'm going to bring in another type of amnesia in a moment. With retrograde amnesia, what happens is information acquired before the trauma, you're unable to retrieve or recall. And again, this is mainly with <coughs> um, our explicit or declarative memories. Anterior grade amnesia would be information presented after that trauma, head injury, a lesion potentially in your brain, that could lead to you know, a hard time being able to make new memories or being able to recall anything that happened to you after the trauma. Now, mainly with amnesia, specifically retrograde and, and anterior grade, the area of the brain that is significant to, well, where is the damage would be our hippocampus. Why? The hippocampus is mostly involved with our explicit or declarative memories. The last type of amnesia um, probably happens to a lot of us. And basically, it, so what it's called <laughs> is source amnesia. And what you happen to do is attribute an experience to the wrong source. So that definition is quite vague. Um, I believe that this example will help cement this. And an example would be telling a joke to someone who told it to you last week. You're unable to attribute the author of the joke um, and attribute the source, basically. And so you 
say the joke again to the same person. I feel like it happens to me where I get told the same story over and over and over again, maybe weeks apart, but I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, but I try to be nice. Now, if you're curious, a lot of you have stayed during Learning Lab and we've talked about, well, what can you do to improve your memory? How can you remember this information? You know, we only have so much time. I can only talk for so long, basically. But there are some, <coughs> you know, good bullet points that you can do to improve that memory. Um, one is making it meaningful with particular links and associations. That specifically is semantic encoding. Another one is distributed practice, also known as the spacing effect. Space out your study as opposed to cramming for five hours. No one, I mean, that, it's just not going to improve your memory to the best of its ability. Um, by spacing it out weeks, months, it, it will, will benefit you. Retrieval cues can also help. The testing effect, um, we've been doing the testing effect without putting a name to it. Basically what happens is testing yourself for how you're going to, you know, what the test will look like in the end game. Um, think that's the reason why, that, that's that rationale as to why our quizzes are timed to mimic what will happen during the AP exam. Practice makes perfect. And if we test how, you know, if we practice and test ourselves in the long run, we'll be ready for that big game or our exam in May. Another example would be chunking, okay? You know, grouping information into meaningful parts. <coughs> Another one could be mnemonics, having, you know, specific cues to help you um, remember abstract information. And the last one is sleep. As silly as it sounds, a theory of why we sleep is to improve our memory, if you think back to unit two. All right, I'm gonna get into the last bit of forgetting and just review memory construction. It's quite important. <coughs> With memory instruction, where does it begin? It begins at encoding, taking in that information. The big thing with memory construction is if you incorrectly encode information, it's then stored incorrectly and then retrieved incorrectly. So let's say you witness a crime. You encode that the robber drove a blue car, so you'll remember it as a blue car, when in reality, the car was red. Our memories fail us constantly. Why? Because of how subjective our memory construction is. Now, what we really care about with memory construction and encoding is this missing information. As humans, we often make inferences to fill in missing info. And we do this, and why and how, it's based on assumptions, but also schemas. What do we know about this particular event from the past? What do we know about this particular room from the past? What makes sense to fill in those you know, missing pieces? That then, that inference become, also becomes encoded. Again, that's an encoding issue. It's a failure within encoding things properly. So an example that I may or may not get to in class is let's say you're out to eat at a restaurant. On that table, you see that there's a candle, a bottle of wine, glasses of wine, plates of pasta, forks, spoons, etc. you know, all of that. <coughs> if you were then asked the next day to retrieve information of, well, what color were the menus? You don't actually remember the menus, but you assume 
that there were menus. You, you know, fill in that missing information. And how do you fill that in? Based off of your schema, your previous experience of going to any restaurant, you know that there are menus. And so, you know, from that previous memory, you fill in the gaps. Now, with memory construction and retrieval, memories can also be altered during the retrieval process. Again, how are we doing that? We're filling in, in missing information with assumptions. This leads to misinformation and our misinformation effect, also known as the eyewitness misinformation effect. What's happening here is misinformation can be added, which then distorts our memories. Uh, what we do with the misinformation effect is incorporating misleading information into one's memory of events. This causes that distortion of your own memory where it becomes quite, quite difficult to decipher or tell what is real from what is actually misinformation. Um, now, the person associated with this misinformation effect, also known as the eyewitness misinformation effect, is known, um, her name is Elizabeth Loftus. She is very, very important with the reconstruction of memories. And what she does is asks several people <coughs> a list of questions and changes the verb within each question. So the first question would be, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? So she took people who witnessed a car crash and she basically changed how she worded a question. And so again, I'll repeat it. The first question was, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? Then the next group of people were asked, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? And depending on what verb or verbs were used, the people then recalled or retrieved the event differently. So she, in actuality, asks five key questions um, plus more. So I'm going to list out five of them um, with memory construction. So Elizabeth Loftus asks, how fast were the cars going <coughs> when they collided with each other? How fast were the cars going when they smashed? into each other, how fast were the cars going when they bumped into each other, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other, and lastly, how fast were the cars going when they con uh, contacted each other. And what they found was the verbs really affected how someone recalled the um, car crash. The people who were exposed to the question with the verb smashed said that the cars were going about 10 miles an hour faster than the group of people who were asked the, with the verb contacted. So verbs, words matter. Um, this is known as that, you know, misinformation effect where we have our memory from the event, but when we're asked to recall it, depending on how we are asked, we can lead into it. what can happen is that distortion of how we retrieve it. Now, if you're curious, need that extra support of, well, who exactly is Elizabeth Loftus? Definitely check out the reading guide in the video and reading guide for unit five. Um, so again, you know, discerning kind of just to wrap it up, discerning true and false memories 
it is quite difficult to determine true from false memories. There's that misinformation effect, source amnesia, other types of amnesia, moods are affecting our memories, retrieval cues, many things shade our memory. And because memory isn't simply recorded and being able to, you know, be played back perfectly, it is quite difficult. There are many things that distort our memories. Um, <coughs> and that kind of pretty much sums it up. Um, definitely when you're reviewing this information, write it out. Um, group and kind of make your own hierarchies, different ways to you know, process this information effortfully so you can really, really encode it. Remember, if you're not encoding this information and you're just trying to memorize it, it will be hard to retrieve it in the future. Um, we're, we're practicing, you know, I'm here to answer questions and also ask questions to you, but remember, some of this does fall on your plate with reviewing it. Um, and that pretty much wraps up our memory section of Unit 5 with Cognition.